it's a joy to be here with, with my extended Romanian family. Uh, we're, we're a proud people, aren't we? I don't know if you caught in Ciprian's prayer before when he's talking about the gospel. He says, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And he says, then to the Romanian, and then the American. And that's, and that's us. I caught that. And it's true. We're a proud people. We touched on some of the, the national pride points um, yesterday, right, with the Klisa and the Slanina, the Karnats and all that good stuff. Um, it's been a joy to be here with everyone this weekend uh, at this RBYA mission conference uh, to serve you. And I look forward to partnering with RBYA going forward uh, with your church and with any Romanian church uh, that would have me and would like me to serve. Originally from Montebello, you guys can, can continue to follow our ministry, montebellochurch.com. Website's almost redesigned and reloaded. Montebello Church, Instagram, uh, and online handles. And, and myself, you reach, I preach. So I look forward to keeping in touch, especially with all you young people. Um, and with that being said, why don't you turn your Bibles again to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. The theme of this conference has been commissioned, and we've been looking at it in three stages, really. It's session one we looked at yesterday morning, the preparation for mission, which is being with Jesus before being sent out by Jesus. And we looked at that from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. Uh, and then we also looked at the prototype for mission, which was Jesus, his model for mission, and specifically his model to everyone, including the lowliest of Gentiles from Mark 5. And this morning, we're going to finish off this conference and bring everything we've studied and learned together, all from the Gospel of Mark in session three, which is now finally being propelled forward into ministry. Jesus says, go and take nothing with you. It's being sent by Jesus after spending that time in training with Jesus from Mark chapter six, verses seven to 13. So follow along with me as I read from Scripture, starting in verse seven. Through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So reads the word of the living God. Eric Little was a missionary to China. He was born in the 1800s, and he was actually born in China to missionary parents in a small town called Tianjin. And in his early years, he ended up moving back to his native Scotland. And as he grew older, it became apparent that he was fast. So fast, much faster than all of the boys his age, and so as the years went by into high school and college, he started training specifically in track and field. He was a sprinter. And in the 1924 Olympics, he was so fast that he ended up winning gold in the 400-meter sprint, which wasn't even his event. 
In fact, Eric Little was marked by faith so early in his life that he was a 100-meter sprint specialist. But because the event occurred on a Sunday, he didn't race it in the Olympics. You see, being faithful to his convictions, to the word of God, meant more to him than winning gold in the Olympics. And he still ended up winning anyways in the 400 meter, which wasn't even his event. And so immediately that thrust him into stardom. He was an Olympic darling of Britain, their hero. Meteoric rise in athletics. But Eric Little had something more important on his mind and on his heart. He'd long felt the call to go back to, to China and serve as a missionary there. And so immediately after the 1924 games, he picked up, packed up, and left to go serve at an Anglo-Chinese college in Tianjin. And he did so for years. Years turned to decades until finally in the early 1940s, World War II broke out, Japan invaded China, and they saw him as an enemy of the state, an enemy of Imperial Japan, and they threw him in the prison camp in Weishin. That was in August 1943. Time went on. He realized the Lord had led him there, and so what did he do? He immediately began serving and meeting the physical needs and the spiritual needs of the 1,800 prisoners in that camp. He would teach them hymns. He would read from the Bible to them. Because he knew that God had called him there. And as dire as those circumstances were, and they were, beaten, flogged for opening the word of God, caught with a Bible in his hands, teaching his inmates hymns, he did it. When food was low and they were emaciated next to starving, he trusted in God and depended on God for his strength and for his provision to meet the need because he knew that the God who called him to China and who called him to be a missionary there would certainly give him everything he needed to do just that and to walk into that calling. And when you read any biographies about Eric Little, like Duncan Hamilton's that came out in 2017, an award-winning writer called For the Glory, or you watch that, that biographical film that came out about him in 1986, Chariots of Fire, won four Academy Awards. What's striking is the utter trust and dependence that this man, seemingly inhuman trust and dependence and determination to serve God where God had led him, where God had commissioned him. It's, it's such a high standard and bar that he set. And I can't help but think about that when I read this text this morning and see that God's called all of us to that same level of self-sacrifice. None of us are exempt. It may be a job or a career or your goals or dreams or whatever. When God places that call on your life and on my life, it takes precedence over everything and anything else in your life. Because mission is the Christian life. It's not going out on a short-term missions trip once a year or a midterm or a long-term trip for two months or three months in a remote, obscure part of the world. It can be that, yes, but it's not just that. It's all of the Christian life. And sometimes God does call you to leave everything behind. Sometimes physically, mentally, emotionally, 
metaphorically sometimes, your, your own goals, your dreams. He calls you to travel light, to bring nothing with you. Because living on mission, reaching the lost and dying world around you with the gospel, which alone has the power to save their souls, is more important to you than your own success, than your own career goals, your own dreams, your own ambitions, and yes, sometimes even your own physical needs. And that's what we're going to see here this morning in Mark chapter 6, in verses 7 to 13. It's, it's the example of the lean life of mission that God's called all of us who are in Christ Jesus to. And so we'll pick it up in verse 7. But before we do, I just want to recap and summarize to give you who, who weren't here with us a little bit of the context and, and what just happened. In the previous story, Jesus comes back from Galilee and Capernaum, which was his headquarters in this early phase of his Galilean ministry, for the first time into his hometown, Nazareth. This is where he grew up. This is where they knew him. His family lived there, his brothers and sisters, it says. And he came back preaching to them in the synagogue on a Sunday. And they welcomed it at first. They were amazed by his wisdom. But then they sat back and started to think, wait a second, we know this guy. He's just a carpenter. He's a blue collar. He's a nobody like us. And they demanded him to perform miracles to prove his message. And he said, I'm not going to do for you what I did in Capernaum. And at that, Mark doesn't say it in his account, but Luke does they became furious, enraged, with a murderous rage, actually. They seized him by force, tried to drag him out of the city and throw him off the nearest cliff. And Jesus, of course, used his supernatural power to evade that. And then the end of verse 6 says he, he preached, he went to preach to the other villages. He went to preach to the other villages, and that's where this story picks up in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. The twelve. Who is this twelve? We looked at it a bit yesterday for those of you, the young people who are with us. It's the twelve, the twelve sent ones, the apostles, the messengers, who are representing kind of a reconstituted, restored Israel. Israel as it should have been. Israel has 12 tribes. They failed in their mission to be the light to the world, the light to the Gentiles, to attract the pagans, the Gentiles, the nations to God because of their apostasy and because of their idolatry. Again and again, you see this throughout the Old Testament. Israel's history is one marked largely by apostasy. They failed in their mission. And so Jesus now appoints a new 12 as representative of those 12. And he sends them out two by two. Why two by two? For support, mutually, for sure. For protection, for sure. For fellowship, for sure. But I think it's also as witnesses. Witnesses to confirm the message. See, there was an Old Testament legal injunction in Deuteronomy 17 and 19 and Numbers 35 which said that something against someone else, an accusation, was only to be entertained in the presence of two witnesses. And so Jesus is saying, you go out two by two so that you'll have two witnesses to every town you go to, 
to witness either their acceptance and welcoming of my message or their rejection of it. And at this point, Mark doesn't tell us the purpose of the mission yet. He hasn't given us the intention. He's going to do that later in verses 12 to 13, and we're going to look at that then. But right now in verse 7, he does tell us something. He tells us something specifically about this unlimited authority that Jesus has in preaching, healing, and casting out demons, which is his to delegate. And for the first time, he's doing that. We've seen how authoritative Jesus is. We looked at that for those who are here with us. And throughout Mark's gospel, he's been emphasizing the miracles, his power over disease, his power over death, his power even over nature in calming the storm. And now he's so powerful and so authoritative that he's actually delegating this authority for the first time to his disciples. The authority that he promised to give them in Mark 3 when he finally called them and appointed the 12 and said, you need to be with me, spend time being trained by me, and then I'm going to send you out with my authority. And now he's given that authority. And that's the qualification for mission. It's being sent out, being commissioned by, being invested with Jesus' authority as his representative, carrying his message, the message about him. That's the only qualification for mission. And it sounds kind of basic to say, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but no one not sent by Jesus goes out in his name. Right? He doesn't send, you don't go out if you're not sent by him. It's the same thing when when you think about politics today. You're not going to catch me running around endorsing and promoting Bernie Sanders. I don't believe in the man, nor do I believe in his socialist, I'd call it communist, policy. So I'm not going to go out endorsing him. I'm not going to go out in his name. And it's the same thing with Jesus. That's the only qualification. You have to believe in him, and if you believe in him and have faith in him, he's going to send you out. That's your qualification. It's faith. It's experiencing the transforming power of the gospel in you, appropriating it through faith, and you're sent out. There are no other credentials needed. It's just the message. The message that saved you, then you take out to others in the world. That's the qualification. And of course, from the moment of salvation, you spend more time with Jesus, right? He's not here, so you spend time with his people in a church Studying the word together, praying together, growing together, having fellowship together, serving one another. And that only increases your readiness and your sharpness and your preparation for that particular mission moment. But once you're saved, you have everything you need. All that other stuff is a plus and it just comes and comes as you continue to grow and mature in your Christian life of faith. And now Jesus gives them the instruction for mission. He's given them the qualification. You have to believe the gospel, be saved, then you're sent. And look at the instruction he leaves them with in verses 8 to 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Why the strange, detailed prohibitions, Jesus? Why the the bizarre instructions about what to bring and what not to bring? 
The staff is okay, sure. No bread, which means no food. No bag, don't bring any money in your belt. You can bring a pair of sandals and one tunic, but not the second tunic, not that outer tunic, which was the outer garment that people often use as a blanket and as a sleeping bag at night for warmth. He's saying that because he doesn't want these 12 bogged down and distracted by and worried about the worldly things of everyday life, which so easily occupy their minds and our minds. It distracts from the mission. You see, if I'm constantly concerned about what I'm going to eat and what I'm going to wear and what I'm going to drink and where I'm going to sleep, I'm not thinking about the mission. And so Jesus is saying, no, don't bring that. You don't need to worry about that. I'm sending you out, which means I'm going to give you what you need. You focus on the task at hand. It certainly wouldn't be easy for us. Right? It'd be like, you're about to go on a mission trip. You lay everything you think you need out on your bed. Your suitcase is open. And Jesus says, no. Comes in, closes it. You come in with me. With just the clothes on your back and whatever you have in your pockets. Now, I'm not saying that that's the model for us today. I understand that. This was a unique context. This is more of a descriptive text than a prescriptive one for us today. But there are certain principles we can glean from this. For them, that was the case because they were unique. This is the 12, the apostles, the hand-picked ones by Christ who spent time with him, were trained by him, saw the risen Christ, and did miracles in his name because he gave them authority. That's not us. So he did meet their every need. And for us, we need to be wise when we're going out. Because he promised to meet their every need, but he doesn't necessarily promise to meet ours when we go out. That's where wisdom comes in. We need to know what to bring, when to bring, depending on the mission we're going to. If you're going on an STM to Haiti, of course you're going to bring luggage and luggage and luggage of food and clothes and basic supplies because the people are living in poverty there and they need it. You're not going to deprive them of that. And wisdom and prudence in that situation will tell you that. You're not bringing it for you. You're bringing it for them. In fact, that's half, 50% of the mission for which you're going, isn't it? Because you can go to them and preach the gospel all you want to try to meet their greatest spiritual need. But if you ain't meeting their physical need, they're not even going to listen to you. So you give them both. You give them both. But as far as your life as mission, your everyday life as mission, here in this part of the world, you don't need all that stuff, do you? You don't need money to live on mission. You don't need things to live on mission. You don't need all sorts of supplies to live on mission, to evangelize those around you. No, you have everything you need. You have the gospel. You have the word of God. And more than anything at this point, what we can learn from this is that we as Christians today who are living on mission need to be willing to part with absolutely anything in our lives that would hinder us, that would distract us, that would detract from the mission 
whatever that might be for you. I know what it is for me, just like you know what that is for you. And you can ask yourself, what's slowing you down? What is it exactly? What's distracting you or hindering you or stunting your effectiveness? Oh, no, you don't understand, Sebastian. I I really need to study and work this hard. I need to get a 4.0 to maintain this GPA so I can graduate top of the class and win these awards and these accolades and then be set up for my dream job in the perfect career and go to a graduate school at an Ivy League. Really? Instead of taking some of that extra time that you're studying in textbooks and instead studying the Word of God, which will better equip you and prepare you for living life on mission? Or you say, oh, no, you know what? Just relax a little bit. You're, you're being too hard on us. I'm young. I just want to enjoy life. I want to have fun. I want to relax. Spend countless hours on Instagram, on TikTok, on Snapchat all day. Okay. That's fair enough. I get that. But imagine how many people you could reach on those platforms alone if you devoted a little bit of time to gospel ministry, to mission, and use those platforms as an opportunity for mission. So whatever that is in your life, and you know what? I'm not saying any of these things are bad. Aiming for academic performance, strong academic performance, is a good thing. Being career-oriented and wanting to to do well in life and take care of you and your own. And even looking for the right guy or girl uh, to marry in life. These are all good things. I know some of you are probably here maybe just for that reason alone to pick up. These aren't inherently bad things. The point is, are these things more important to you than living life on mission? The mission for which you've been commissioned. Are they more important to you? Your goals, your dreams, your desires, your your wants. Are they more important to you than telling the world about what Jesus has done for you? That's the question. Verse 10. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Now, In the ancient Near Eastern context, traveling rabbis or teachers, they would go from town to town. And it was customary Jewish hospitality for them to welcome a traveling rabbi. He would come into a new town, first person to greet him, whoever it was, or welcome him and let him stay in his place, wherever that was. That was normal. That was customary. That was a nicety. Jesus is saying to the disciples, when I send you out and you go into a town and the first person to welcome you and accept you puts you up in his barn to sleep with the animals, you don't go to the nice, wealthy, higher up social status person the next day when he, when he offers you to come stay in his nice, warm, cozy inn with your own bed and your own privacy. No, you don't do that. You stay there until you depart. But it's human tendency to to look for and be lured by lavish accommodations, isn't it, when we go traveling? 
There is a sense in which it's only human, it's normal. But there's the other sense in which it's unnecessary, it distracts. Look, I came here this weekend, RBYA put me up in a nice hotel, standard king room, it's everything I need. The Clarion, right near the airport, very convenient. Now imagine this for a second, imagine last night, a nice member of your church came to me and said, oh, Sebastian, we've been so blessed by you. Thank you for bringing God's message from God's word to us. Uh, I just want to show you and express a little bit of my appreciation. Uh, so I got you a presidential suite in the Ritz-Carlton. And I would have said, yes. <laughs> Thank you. And that's my point. That's the human nature inside of us. But it's wrong. Yes, it's normal on the one hand, but on the other hand, think of the problems it can cause. It distracts us, it bogs us down. Think about the impact on other believers, in this case, showing partiality or favoritism. You can rub people the wrong way and offend them, and this is exactly the kind of thing that James in 2, 1 to 13 rails against, doesn't he? It's unnecessary. It's baggage. And we don't need it. Look at verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Yes, some will accept you and welcome you, Jesus is saying. And that's a good thing. And you should rejoice when they do and stay with them as long as they'll have you minister to them, preach the gospel to them. But he's saying, not everyone will welcome you. Not everyone will accept you. And they won't welcome you and accept you because you come representing me and my message. You come in my name. And when they don't, shake the dust off your feet. Shake the dust off your feet. What does that mean? There was a rabbinic tradition in that day. So the rabbis, the teachers, the, the erudite, the elite of the religious system in Israel, whenever they would go traveling, and they would do so outside of the Holy Land, outside of the official boundaries of the Israeli territory, when they would return and come back, they had a habit of shaking off their clothing and their shoes symbolically as representative of shaking off the filth of the unclean Gentiles. That's what they did. And so Jesus here is saying, you shake the dust off your feet when they don't welcome you. Not like the rabbis symbolically to shake off the uncleanness. No. You're doing, as, you're doing that as a witness, as a testimony against them for rejecting you, and in so doing, rejecting me. And you're doing that in the presence of two. So that testimony is proven. It's a testimony against them. There's that judicial injunction again. It is a kind of sign of judgment. Not necessarily saying that those who initially rejected when they went out, even on this mission, are condemned to hell forever, no. But immediately they didn't receive and they didn't welcome it. 
Certainly the Lord could have drew them to himself and produced faith in their hearts and in their mind at the right time. But by telling them this right now, Jesus is hinting to them that they will experience rejection. It's not just a possibility. He's saying when, if you look at the language, it's going to happen. Of course they're going to reject you if they're rejecting me, he says. You were with me just a moment ago in Nazareth. You saw what my own people did to me. My own family, whom I grew up with, who knew me. They wanted to kill me. So don't be surprised when they try to do the same to you too. And should you and I expect anything different today? Should we expect someone to roll out the red carpet when we come to them to preach a a crucified king, a crucified Lord? And it's that kind of thinking that can often lead to regret. You can blame yourself when you're doing evangelism or living on mission. Oh, if I would have just said this and that, or oh, if I, I just would have not talked about repentance in hell, or maybe I should have just focused on the love of God in Christ Jesus and not the judgment or his holiness that demands a penalty for sin. No, you can't blame yourself for that. It's a hostile message. And rejection will happen. And if you expect it, you don't have to sit and dwell and blame yourself and worry about the what-ifs. No, you leave all that behind you. It's said and done and over with. You can't change what you said, when you said it, to whom you said it, but you can look forward and press on to what lies ahead. The mission. The mission. And you press on looking forward, shaking the dust off your feet from that rejection. Undeterred, undistracted, focused, lasered in. And it is okay sometimes to give up on someone, maybe a loved one, a family member, a brother, a sister, a friend, someone dear to you. And I'm not talking about giving up on them permanently. No, God forbid. You continue lifting them up in prayer, interceding for them to God, the God of mercies who has the power to remove their heart of stone and to give them a heart of flesh, a heart of faith that will accept and welcome his message. You do that. And if they're ever willing to still meet with you, to hear you out, to talk to you, you do that. But if they're not, you stop wasting time. You stop investing time in someone when there's no return on that investment. You move on to the next one. Someone who will listen. And that's something else we can learn from this at this point. It's we're strategic about who we spend time with and how much time we spend with them. Because not everyone will welcome our message. And those that don't, We can't afford to spend and waste our time with them. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I can't. I'm busy. I got a church to shepherd, to counsel, to preach to every Sunday. I got a K-8 Christian school to oversee. A thriving Spanish congregation ministry in our church. A wife, two little girls at home to spend time with. I don't have time to waste in the rocky ground, in the thorny soil. 
No, of, of course, we spread the seed and, and preach it to everyone, yes. But I'm not going to spend time on the rocky ground, on the soil that won't receive the word. I will invest and spend time on the good soil, on the soil that welcomes the message and desires the message and wants to hear the message and know more about the person of the message, Jesus. I have a kind of a, my own informal discipleship policy, and I hope it continues to the end of my ministry as long as the Lord will have me. Someone comes to me, says, oh, Sebastian, can you disciple me? If they're not coming to church every Sunday, and at the very least worshiping together in community and fellowship with the other saints, if they're not sitting under the preaching of the word that I open up every Sunday and have poured hours into throughout the week to get to the meaning and apply it to them, I'm not going to spend time with them one-on-one. -on -one because they're not serious. I know they're not serious. And many of you men in ministry, I'm, I'm sure, have seen this already. No, I, I want to see that they have some skin in the game. They have something invested. There's some desire there, some interest. And if they're not coming to church on Sunday to hear the word, they're not interested. So we've seen the qualification for mission. Knowing and believing the gospel. That's the equipment. That's everything you need. And then we've seen some of the specific instruction and how that might apply to us today. And now finally, Mark brings it all together in Jesus' words. And he gives us the, the purpose, the intention of the mission in verses 12 to 13. And he says this. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. We've talked about this already at length, and I'm not going to belabor the point. Yes, he gave them power, miracles, and authority over demons. But he did it to them to authenticate their message, and them as his divinely appointed messengers who were bringing new revelation. Many of whom actually recorded what we have here in Scripture. We're not bringing any new revelation, are we? The canon of Scripture is closed. Amen. So we don't have a need for miracles. Because we have no new message to authenticate. We have the message here. So that's not even the main focus or the purpose, at least not for us in this context, to apply. The mission for which he sent them, and the mission for which we're sent today, it's to what? It says, proclaim repentance. Proclaim to people that they should repent. That's the mission. Nothing more, nothing less. And you'll say, well, wait a second. Is it just preaching repentance? What about belief or does faith have a part to play in it? Yes, it does. This is just Mark's abbreviated style. He loves to do this. This is his style of writing. He, he shortens things. He compacts it at times. He says repentance here, but in the beginning, if you recall, in chapter 1, verse 15, he said Jesus came uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God that people should repent and believe in the gospel. And this is for sure what they're doing too. He's just abbreviating it. You preach repentance and belief in the gospel. That's the mission. It's not hard. It's not inaccessible to everyday average Christians, even new Christians. 
It's simple. The message by which you've saved, you bring to other people who are desperately in need of salvation. The gospel is the only equipment you need to qualify you to be sent in Jesus' name, to live life on mission. Eric Little would often say, God made me for China. And God did make him in China. He was born in China. But you say again and again, God made me for China. That's what people close to him would say. There's a man who answered the calling and the commission to be a missionary to the Chinese people. There is a man with resolve, with determination, with dependence on God, because he knew God had made him for China. Back home in Britain and at the Paris Games in 24, reporters would interview him and he'd always say, I run for the glory of God. He did run for the glory of God. He understood that his whole life was to be lived for the glory of God. Whether he ate or drank or worked or served or slept or ran, whatever he did, he did for the glory of God. And the glory of God is most manifest in you and in me like it was in Eric Little when we understand that he has called us to live a life of mission and then when we actually do it. Wherever he's commissioned us, here, in America, in this part of the world, in China, or even in the most remote and obscure places you can think of. That's mission. That's the Christian life. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you this morning Grateful for this mission that you've called us to. Grateful that it's one that's so simple and so easy to understand. It's the same message that we've been saved by. That's what you've equipped us with. That's what the qualification we need is to know it, to proclaim it. And yet, Lord, we still know our fragility, our weakness in the flesh, our distractions. Bearing this sinful human nature being bogged down by the everyday worries in this life, in this part of the world, consumerism, fast-paced lifestyle, all the burdens of having life and a life of abundance here in this part of the world. Lord, would you help us to separate all those things and leave behind all the baggage that would bog us down from this mission for which you've called us to. I pray this for every single person in this room this morning, the young and the old. For we depend on you for all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.